All right, this morning we will continue our study with the book of Genesis. But the first thing that we're going to do every single week is we are going to bow the knee and we're going to call on God. and We're going to ask God to meet us as we unpack his word, as we study his word. So please pray with me. Lord, we come this morning to magnify you, to glorify you. God, and we tell you in prayer, even now, what we sung to you in song, Lord. That you are a wonderful Savior, God. And we say hallelujah to you, Lord Jesus. What a Savior. God, we magnify your finished work in this place today as your body, as your church, as the people that are called by your name. And we worship you, Lord, for who you are and for what you've done for us through your gospel. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your perfect salvation. Thank you, Lord, that the moment that you gave up your life, that you uttered those words, that it is finished. God, thank you for a perfect salvation that in one holy moment, with one act of obedience, you washed away all of our sins, all the sins of all who trust you for all of time. Lord, we worship you for your cross, for your gospel. God, we come to you today as your people called by your name. And we thank you, Lord, that you have allowed us even to become your children through adoption, through the work of Christ. And we say back to you, Lord, how great a love that you have given us, Lord, that we in this place today, sinful we can be called the children of God. Lord, we worship you. God, we ask you as our Father in heaven to be faithful to us today and to feed us, Lord, with the portion, God, that you have for us. God, we ask you to nourish your church today, to feed your children. And we come with faith today, Lord, that that you are a good father, Lord. We don't ask you for bread and you give your children a serpent. And so we ask you for bread today, Lord, bread from heaven, bread for our souls. God, all around this room, Lord, nourish our hearts with your truth. God, we need you. We need to be reminded of who you are. And so we ask you to do that today as we study your word. God, I pray for any unsuspecting ones in our midst today. Just like you did with Sarah in this passage. Lord, I pray, God, that you would... Confront them with your power, with the reality of who you are, God. That you would surprise them, Lord, with how much authority you have and how much power you have. God, help us to walk away from this gathering today, having met with you. God, draw near to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, if you have your Bibles this morning, go ahead and turn to Genesis Chapter 18, we'll talk just a moment about where we're at in the study of the book of Genesis. And we just finished up chapter 17. In chapter 17, the covenant with Abraham and Sarah was renewed. So this is what's going on. Genesis chapter 17, the covenant is renewed and Abram and Sarah, they get a name change. They get a new name, a slight variation on their name to reflect God's promises To this man and this woman. And then they're just going through life. Okay, This is the normal rhythms of their life. And then Genesis chapter 18 happens. And an unexpected guest arrives in this chapter. We're going to talk about that today. Before we go into Genesis chapter 18, I want you to think about something this morning. Okay, This will be a little different for every one of us in the room. And I want you to think about... The most prominent human being that you have ever shared a meal with. Okay? Now that's going to be different all across the room. Um, some of us have some really cool stories of, hey man, this one time I got to eat a meal with this person. And we're talking about uh, a range of people. Whoever comes to mind when you think about who is the most prominent human being that I have ever shared a meal with. Whether it's a pastor or an artist, okay, or a politician or 
an athlete or some kind of corporate business leader. In an earthly sense, this moment where you got to share this meal with this prominent figure. Okay? So get that in your mind all over the room. Some of us got some really cool stories. And I know some, some other people in the room are scratching their head and they're like, man, I don't got a cool story today. Okay? And so, whatever it is, from the range of, you know, whoever comes to mind, then we put that example next to what happens in Genesis 18. And all of a sudden, we're all in the same boat, okay? That we can boast in an earthly sense of, hey, this one time I ate with so-and-so, but it doesn't even begin to compare to what happens in Genesis 18. In Genesis 18, God comes to dinner. Okay? God comes and sits at Abraham's table and he eats a meal. This is mind-blowing grace from God. We're going to unpack this passage today. Let's begin with Genesis chapter 18. Let's read the first eight verses. This is the word of God. And the Lord appeared to him, it's Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre. As he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, three men were standing in front of him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, Oh, Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet. Rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent and said and uh, and went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three says of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. And then he took curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. All right, so let's get something clear Um, as we unpack Genesis 18 this morning, the very first phrase tells us that the Lord appeared to Abraham. And so already I want to let us know that we as readers of Genesis 18, we know something um, about these three men, these these um, extraordinary men that show up outside of Abraham's tent. In fact, we know that these are not men at all. Okay. Um, In fact, the rest of chapter 18 and chapter 19 are going to unpack to us that this is the Lord himself and two of his angels in disguise, incognito. Okay, and we know that as readers. But here's the thing. Okay, Abraham does not know that in this chapter. At least initially, Abraham does not know that about these three men. All he knows is this rhythms of life. Normal, ordinary day, and all of a sudden, three figures, three men, appear outside of his tent. Okay? And they are extraordinary figures. And we know that because two things happen. Okay? Abraham begins to pour out this extravagant reverence toward these men. And then he begins to give them lavish hospitality. And so there's something extraordinary that Abraham is picking up. Um, about these three men. So let's think this out and, and let's see where the Holy Spirit would have us to go in this text of Scripture. Okay? So you have three men. Something is sticking out as extraordinary about these three men. Something about their physical appearance must have stuck out to Abraham. And how do we know that? Because the text in verse 2 tells us that he ran towards these men. Now, context. Okay? Abraham is 100 years old by the time that we come to Genesis 18. And so the Bible is telling us that we have a 100-year-old man running. Okay, And that doesn't happen a whole lot when you're 100 years old. So that's significant. 
That a hundred year old man is running to meet these strangers. And not only that, verse 2 tells us that when Abraham gets there, he bows down before them. Okay? So, if you have the book of Genesis and you're reading this narrative and this story, that ought to stick out to you as very significant. Because Abraham has stood before some powerful men already in the book of Genesis, like Pharaoh. Okay? Like Pharaoh or like um, um, Melchizedek, the king of Salem. Okay, And neither one of those things happen when he stands before the king of Egypt or when he stands before the king of Salem. No running towards him, no bowing down. This is significant. There's something extraordinary about these men that sparks this response from Abraham. They're commanding, these men are commanding reverence just by their appearance, just by their physical appearance. Then in verse 3. Of our text this morning, one of the three men gets singled out above the other two. And Abraham begins, Abraham begins to dialogue with one of these three men. And he begins to call this man Lord. Okay? Lord. In fact, he turns the corner and he calls, Abraham calls himself this man's servant two different times in our passage. Okay? So something significant is going on here. This is not just a story about standard hospitality. Something else is happening in this passage of Scripture. Now to confirm this, let's, let's see how it plays out. Okay, In verse 6, 100-year-old Abraham, after the men agree to dine with him, verse 6 tells us that he went quickly. So he ran to them and he runs away from them. He runs inside and he tells Sarah... Quick, And then he tells this, he runs to the servant and, and the servant is doing things quickly. So everything in this paragraph, in this narrative, has a sense of urgency to it. That this chosen man of God is counting this, this tremendous privilege that these three figures would show up at his house. Okay. Then look at verse five. They're talking, and basically what happens in verse 5 is Abraham offers these men a snack, okay? And we have that, uh, literally it says, a morsel of bread. Now when we read that, that's what we think about. Not, you know, a big loaf of bread, but a morsel of bread. Just take a little food, rest yourselves, and then go on your way. But look how this story plays out. So that's the offer, a morsel of bread. And then Abraham, Abraham runs inside and he tells Sarah, quick, three sayas of wheat, three sayas of fly, fine flour. If you grab your ESV footnote of that Hebrew measurement sayah, you find out that this is somewhere in the neighborhood of 22 liters of flour or the English equivalent of five gallons of flour. Now. If you are a college student in here and you have not been introduced to this thing that we call cooking for yourself, okay, five gallons of flour is a tremendous amount of flour, okay? Or to say it this way, five gallons of flour, any day you slice it, okay, is it makes way more bread than three men could ever dream to eat, okay? Like times ten. Okay, so this massive amount of bread is being cooked. And so the offer is, let me give you a morsel of bread, you distinguished guest. And then he runs back with the mother load of bread. Okay, and you have a calf, a tender calf, and you have milk and you have curds. And so all this is pointing to these distinguished guests. And you basically what you have is you have this feast that's being spread in, in the wilderness, this lavish Hospitality um, for these three figures. And really the point of all this lavish hospitality is not to draw our attention to Abraham or Sarah, but to draw our attention to who are these men that would merit such hospitality. And that's really important to get the main thought in a verse of scripture. Okay. And here's what I mean by that. Um, Dustin, are you saying that uh, that that we shouldn't be hospitable like Abram? No, I'm not saying that at all. 
Okay? Did Abraham show tremendous hospitality in this passage? Yes, he did. All day long. Should Christians show hospitality like Abraham did? Abraham did? Yes, they should. All day long. That's a biblical command. What about Sarah? Did Sarah not show a readiness to, to, to jump into unexpected good works? And, and did she not show uh, a, a good model of a wife following the lead of her husband to serve these unexpected guests? Yes, she did. She's a model for us all day long. Should, should not Christian wives um, 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 spring uh, to, to, to unexpected guests and to good works um, um, without it all planned out? Yeah, yes, they should. Should not Christian wives... Follow their husband's lead as they serve God and serve people. Yes, yes, they should all day long. Okay, Yes, they should all day long. But neither of those things is really the main point of this lavish hospitality that we have spread in the wilderness. The main point is these men that are sitting at their table right outside of their tent. So I want us to, to sit in this for just a moment. Okay. At some point. As this meal goes on. Goes forward. There was a moment in time. Where it became clear to Abraham. That one of those men. Was in fact God himself. Okay. We don't know exactly where that happens. In Genesis 18. But we know it happens. There was this holy moment as this meal progressed forward that Abraham discerned that one of these strangers, extraordinary men, is in fact God himself. Now, it may have happened when he first saw one and ran and fell down at his feet and said, Lord, okay, may have been then. But if it didn't happen then, it definitely happened by the time we get around to verse nine. Listen closely. Verse 9, they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. All right, I want you to think about that, okay? This is not, you know, some weird question of a dude asking another dude, you know, about his wife. Okay, I want you to think about if you're sitting at a meal with a stranger, I want you to think about the kinds of emotions, the kinds of thoughts that would be rolling across your mind. If that stranger began to reveal personal, secret information about you. Okay? I want you to think about where your mind would go. The immediate emotions that would spring into your mind and into your heart. And depending on the nature of that information, you know, determines how alarmed you are. You know, if somebody comes to my house and they discern my address, that's not very impressive. You know, we got iPhones and they can look at my numbers on my house when they walk in the front door. But there's more personal information that if they began to share with me, be more alarming. Okay. And so what happens in this passage? These men that have never met Abraham. Okay. Therefore, they have never met Sarah. And all of a sudden, in the midst of this feast spread in the wilderness, they say, where's Sarah? And the implication is that they knew her name without ever being told her name. And not only that, for, for Sarah's whole life, her name has been Sarah. Okay? For one chapter of scripture only has her name been Sarah. Okay? And that name was given to her by God himself, not by men, not by her mom and daddy. And so these visitors and these strangers, not only do they know his wife's name, they know the name that God gave her that the implication is that nobody else should know. And they continue to reveal information about Sarah in Genesis 18. And the implication is only God can know these things. So I want you to imagine this holy moment where these light bulbs go off in Abraham's mind and he begin, his brain begins to scramble. Wait a second. Only God can know that. Wait a second. That's God. At my table. This guest that I thought was extraordinary is extraordinary indeed. This is the living God. 
that has drawn near and shown himself to me. This point, it becomes clear that God himself has come to dinner, right? Old Testament scholar John Curd, he says this, What began as hospitality before men ended with fear and trembling before God. That's quite a transition. This normal rhythms of life in Genesis 18. Now, as shocking as that would have been, when that began to hit Abraham, and Sarah's standing at the tent door hearing everything that's going on, as shocking as that would have been for both of them, God's intention for drawing near to them and revealing himself to them is not to shock them. That's not God's intention in this passage of Scripture. In fact, God is drawing near and manifesting himself to them to encourage them, specifically to encourage Sarah. So I want you to think about where this falls in Genesis. What just happened? Genesis 17, the covenant was renewed. The covenant with God was renewed in Genesis 17. And the very next thing that happens in the book of Genesis is God shares a meal with his covenant people. This is the picture of what's going on here. This is a covenant meal, a picture of table fellowship with God. That Abraham has this kind of access to God. God comes to dinner at his house. This is the presence of God given to his people. And this close proximity that God has given Abraham his presence. The biblical writers pick up on this theme. That three different times in the word of God, Abraham is referred to as, listen closely, the friend of God. The friend of God. Jot these down. Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 7. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 8. And James chapter 2, verse 23. Abraham, the friend of God. Do you have a grid... For that kind of relationship with God. He is my creator. He is my redeemer. But do you have that category? He is my friend. Abram was a friend of God. In fact, he becomes the only person to see God eat food prior to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And the implications of this passage is why is God shown to be eating food? And the implications are really clear that this is not a vision. This is not he ate something really weird and had this really weird dream. This is a real physical appearance of God. He came to dinner at the man's house. Okay. Eating real food. And that's the picture that we get. This is intimate friendship. Close spiritual friendship. Abraham is a friend of God. And so this meal shows us that, shows us who Abraham is, but it also shows us who God is. And that's really more important for us in this text of Scripture. This meal shows us who God is. He is a God that shares His presence with His people. He is a God that draws near to His people. He is a God who makes Himself known to His people. Yesterday, today, and forever. He has always been a God. That reveals himself to his people. But for our purposes, as we gaze backwards on this story, it's important for us to note, brothers and sisters in Christ, that we have greater access to God than even Abraham, the friend of God, had. I wonder if you believe that this morning. That Abraham prepares this feast for God. But Jesus has promised every believer in this room that a spiritual feast is available for you at any moment. And listen really closely, okay? We don't just dine with Christ. We don't just feast with Christ. We do that. But the Bible tells us that we actually feast on Him. That He is our nourishment. He is our sustenance. This is exactly what He tells us. In John chapter 6, verse 51, Jesus says, I am the the living bread. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give 
For the life of the world is my flesh. Is my flesh. Not only can we feast with Christ, you feast on Jesus. This is the offer that has been made to us from the bread of life. Jesus Christ himself. Now, one of the things that is true of every Christian, and certainly every Christian in this room, myself included. One of the things that is true about us is that every single one of us appropriate less of our spiritual inheritance than we have been given. Jesus dumps all the, the, the blessings of heaven on us. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is ours in Christ Jesus. He gives us grace upon grace. And so that's what we have access to. But every single one of us live below that. We appropriate less than what we have been given through the gospel. And that is definitely true for us in this realm of Jesus promising us his manifest presence. Every single believer in this room, you appropriate less than what you have been promised in Jesus Christ. And so I want us to consider this. We have better access to God than Abraham had. And here's what I don't mean. He was a friend of God. He really knew God. He really enjoyed the presence of God. But listen to this. In the book of Genesis, a handful of times God appears to Abraham. Just a handful of times. And as we read that, we're reminded that that's over a 25-year span of his life. Just a handful of times. Four or five, five times God appears to this man over a 25 year period. And so, yes, brothers and sisters, he was a friend of God. He enjoyed the presence of God. He had access to God, but not like we have in Christ. Not like we have in Christ. He enjoyed God's presence periodically, but Jesus has promised his presence to the believer in perpetuity, a perpetual access to God himself that is never unavailable for us. Absolutely and always, there is a way that has been made open to the Father through the work of Christ. Perpetuity, perpetual access to God. And let me just encourage you with this this morning. When we say that you have access to God, you know, rightly so. The Bible tells us that we should draw near to God. And there's some responsibility that we have to appropriate this grace. But I just want to remind you of something this morning. Of how ready the Lord Jesus is to meet with every believer in this room. He is not reluctant to draw near to us. Listen to this verse in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. He says... Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Jesus pictures himself through the new covenant to every believer in this room knocking at the door. Not you begging him, but him pursuing you for fellowship. Pursuing you for his presence. And so I want you to think about this this morning. In Genesis chapter 18, we have this hundred year old man at the opportunity to dine with these extraordinary ones that turn out to be God himself and angels. And he gets the opportunity to commune with them and to have fellowship with them. And what does he do? He begins to spring into step. He's running here. He's quickly doing this. There's some urgency about this man's life. Everything in his life begins to go this direction of preparing this meal for these guests. And I just want to ask you, brothers and sisters, if that's true for Abraham, okay, how much more should that be true for us that there ought to be some urgency and some spring in our step? Answer that door as Christ, the incarnate Son of God, is knocking to dine with us. There ought to be some urgency pursuing fellowship with Jesus. In fact, this ought to be the pattern of our life as believers. 
That the pattern of your life, what are you doing today, brother? What are you doing today, sister? That repetitively, over and over and over again, consistently, that you are reaching over spiritually and opening up the door to dine with Christ. To dine with Him. To commune with Jesus. To appropriate this glorious access to God that we have been given through the gospel. And so my reminder to us with this picture of this God drawing near is that Jesus died that you would live in the presence of God. He bled for this. This is a blood bought gift that he has given to us access to the father. It was opened up through a new and living way through his flesh. Okay, this is a gospel gift that cost Jesus his life. To give to us that we would live all of life in the presence of God. James chapter 4 verse 8 reminds us that if we draw near to God. Listen. He will draw near to you. I'll say that again. Draw near to God. And He will draw near to you. May God help us to believe that. That if I, I'll take God at His word, if I draw near to Him, He's going to manifest Himself in me. He's going to dine with me and I can commune with Christ. Alright, let's take this a step further this morning. Genesis 18, not only does God draw near in Genesis 18, but He draws near for the purposes of increasing faith. Specifically, Sarah's faith. So he's here to do a work in her life. Let's pick it up in verse 10. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. And Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. And the way of woman had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself. Saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year. And Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. I like that part too. No, but you did laugh. Alright, so God doubles down on this offspring promise that we've seen a handful of times already in Genesis. Except this time, he doubles down on it. And he says, he doesn't say, I will return. He says, I will surely return. And then he prophesies a date. Okay, This is not a maybe, but about this time next year, I will surely return and you will have a son. Now, as God's promises often do, those words of that stranger outside her tent assaulted her reality. We've used that phrase before in the book of Genesis. Her reality and everything that she knew about life, that word assaulted everything that she knew to be true. And we get three descriptions of exactly how that promise assaulted Sarah's reality. The first is, they were old. And then the second is, they were advanced in years. Translation, they were really old. Okay? They were old. No, they were really old. And then we have this phrase. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. Now we know this in the book of Genesis and another time that this phrase happens. That is a reference to menstruation. Okay. And the Holy Spirit of God finds it necessary to tell us that this woman has been through menopause. That's an important enough detail in this story 
that in sacred scripture we would be told that this woman has been through menopause. So I want you to think about this. At this point in Sarah's life, okay, why does God drag this promise out for so long? One of the answers to that is this, okay? At this point in Sarah's life, it is not just unlikely that she will have a child. Listen closely. She's been through menopause. It is biologically impossible for this woman to become pregnant, okay? There is no longer a biological opportunity for this woman to become pregnant. Why? Because the way of women has ceased with her. Okay? And so there's a transition in Genesis 18 from barrenness to menopause. Okay? Listen to how Pastor Ken Hughes comments on this transition. He calls Sarah's womb doubly dead. Not just barren. Doubly dead. Okay? And this is why she responds with a laugh. Because the promise of God just assaulted a biological reality in her life. And in unbelief and in cynicism, she laughs at the promise of God. And, she's, and she is gently rebuked for that laugh. Now let's think about this. All she did was laugh at what this stranger said. And this rebuke shows us this close association between the God of Scripture and the words of Scripture. And I want you to see that. She laughed at a word, but she offended God. And that's true across the board. That what we do with the word of God is attributed as doing that to God himself. You ever hear somebody do that? Somebody say they're a Christian and downplay the word of God? They don't realize it, or maybe they do, but they're downplaying the God that stands behind that word. And what happens here in Genesis 18 is to not believe a promise of God is counted as not believing the God of the promise. Translation, unbelief is offensive to God. Unbelief is offensive to God. If you ever needed a reason to hate Unbelief in your life, here it is. Unbelief is offensive to God. Unbelief mocks the power of God. It's offensive to Him. God takes unbelief personally. Personally. And this earns Sarah a rebuke. She laughs, and then she makes excuses for her unbelief. But the thing is, is the text tells us that she's talking to herself. She giggles to herself and she rolls across these excuses in her own mind. And then what happens? Her secret thoughts in this normal, ordinary day are being read like a book through this stranger that has drawn near and visited her house. And this is this is the moment, right? That awkward moment, that alarming moment. When the light bulb goes on and she begins to realize and the way that she's being dealt with is that is God. That's not a man. That is God. Pastor Ken Hughes says this. If Hagar named God, you are the God who sees me. He says, Sarah should name God. You are the God who sees inside of me, inside of me. Her secret thoughts are being read like a book by God himself. She is in the presence of one who knows all things. He knows all secrets. He has perfect knowledge. And sometimes we have this really bad idea that it's not sin as long as it doesn't manifest externally. You can have a sinful thought that is offensive to God that he counts as sin. And the terrifying thing is he knows every single one of them that you have ever had in your entire life. God is discerning her thoughts from afar. Why is he doing this? Hebrews chapter 4 tells us because he can't 
help himself. Listen to Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13. No creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. He can't help but see all things. He can't help, he can't help but be who he is. And to have perfect knowledge. And to have the human heart and the human mind laid exposed, laid naked before him. He sees it because he can't help himself. And he responds to Sarah's laughter with the rebuke in the form of a question. And the question is this. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And the obvious implication that he was pressing upon Sarah is she had came to a place in her life that she thought something was too hard for the Lord. And she was rebuked on this day by this question from God, is anything too hard for the Lord? And that's the question that the Holy Spirit wants to press on us today from this text of Scripture. Ask yourself that. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Listen closely. This promised son to Sarah was a biological, natural, physical, rational, logical impossibility from a human perspective. But it was not impossible for the God of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1. This God opens his mouth and says, let there be light. And there's light. In just a few short chapters in Genesis chapter 21, this same God, this God of power, this God of might, and this God of authority is going to bring life to this dead womb in this woman. This is who he is. And that's the question. Is there anything... Too hard for the Lord. And the answer is no. There is nothing impossible with God. There is nothing too hard for the Lord. And it's really important that we grasp this as disciples of Jesus and as children of God. Because God has actually designed history to reflect this over and over and over again. And here's what I mean. Purposefully, by design, and by intention, God continues to make and fulfill promises all throughout Scripture that are impossible from a rational, logical, natural, biological perspective. And over and over and over again, He overcomes what is impossible with man, but is possible with God. See this play out over and over and over again. The most clear place this, this plays out is this, you have this birth announcement in Genesis 18 of this promised son. Well, that's actually, uh, this is actually a type of a birth announcement that's coming a, a couple of thousand years later of the birth of the only son of God. And that birth comes the, the, the same way that this one does. This is, this is what God has designed to do throughout human history. To bring forward His promise in a way that from an earthly human sense is impossible. It's not rational. It's not logical. It's not natural. Okay, It's, it's not possible physically. It's not possible biologically. But yet we have the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're reminded... That upon his birth, God did it again. He did what was not naturally possible. He did what was not logical. It was not rational. It assaulted reality. How did he do it? Luke chapter 1. A virgin is to bring forth the Christ. A woman who has never known a man is to bring forth the Son of God. This Son is going to come with supernatural provision from God. God is going to do what is biologically impossible. God is going to do something that from a human perspective is irrational. Luke chapter 1 verse 35. And the angel answered her. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. 
And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And that would not be the last time that that same theme happens, right? The same exact thing, assault on human reality at the very end of the earthly life of Jesus Christ. Same exact thing happens. They kill the Savior. He is dead, dead, dead. They place Him in a tomb. He has no pulse. He has no breath in His lungs. He is dead, dead, dead. His body is a cold corpse. And what happens? God again does what is not biologically possible. He does something that overrides the laws of nature. He does something that is not rational. He does something that is not logical. What happens? The power of God comes upon the dead body of Jesus. And He's raised on the third day by the glory of the Father. And every single one of us look in wonder. And we, and we praise our God. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Is there anything impossible for Him? Is there anything that is too hard for Him? Is there anything that He cannot do? He brings life out of death. He brings life out of death by His Word and nothing else. There is nothing too hard for the Lord. Jeremiah chapter 32 verse 17 says, Lord God, it is You who have made the heavens and the earth by Your great power. And by your outstretched arm, nothing is too hard for you. Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 27. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? This is the prayer. This is what the Spirit is pressing on us. Do you believe that? Is that your God? That nothing is impossible for Him? He is intentionally... Made promises to you. It is so important that you get this. He has intentionally made promises to you. That are not biologically, physically, rationally, logically possible from a human perspective. He has intentionally done that in your life. So that He could be magnified as the God of all power. The God of all power. And I do not mean to say that our faith is irrational or illogical. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that the most irrational thing for a creature to do living in God's creation is to live in God's creation as though there were no creator. To, take, to, to not even take the creator of the, of the creation into account. That's irrational. That's irrational. God has called us out of a life where we only live by what we can see. He did that at conversion when He called us to faith in Jesus Christ. We have been called out of that rationalistic, naturalistic, biological only, human perspective only. We've been called out of that. Okay, Unbelief only looks to, what it, to the things that are seen. It only looks at reality from a human perspective. But faith looks to the things that are not seen. Reality from God's perspective. And this is what God has called us to as followers of Christ. That we believe the things that are not seen. That we take into account the Creator. The Creator at the ends of the earth has said this. And we take God at His word. And we believe that there is nothing impossible with God. I want us to close by just pressing this question in this morning. God shows up in Sarah's life. And she is walking in unbelief. And in mercy and grace, God shows up and exposes that unbelief in her life. And may the Lord do the same thing with us today. Is there any area of your life where you're walking in this mindset that you are not believing that there is nothing too hard for the Lord? That there's nothing impossible with your God? So I want us to be warned and be careful 
Lest we be found laughing just like Sarah. Laughing at the power of God. So I'm going to give you a few ways to examine your heart this morning. Think about your children, moms and dads across this room. I want, you, I want you to think about, do you believe this? Is your conversion, is the conversion of your children today, is it too hard for the Lord? Is it too hard for the Lord to convert your children? Is His arm too short to save them? Is His power, is His gospel not powerful enough to penetrate their heart? Is He not able to save your children? Is it too hard for Him? What about strife in your marriage? Husbands and wives in this room. Is God not able to help you in your marriage? Listen, we're talking about the one that a megastorm uh, happens on the, sea, on the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus stands up in a boat and rebukes the winds and the waves. And in the moment they, they crash down and, they, and they're as still as glass. And they say, even the winds and the waves obey him. Is he not able to bring peace in your marriage? Is he not able to heal the bickering in your marriage? To give you strong help from heaven in the way that you relate to one another as husband and wife? Is your downcast soul too hard for the Lord? The one who raised Jesus from the dead? Is he not able to lift you out of the deep pit? Is it too hard for him? Is your pit too deep that the arm of God can't lift you out of? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? What about your secret sin? Is your secret sin too hard for God? That the God who cast out a legion of demons, that He can't use that same power and that same authority in your life to break the power of sin? Is there anything too hard for Him? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? What about your spiritual fruitfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ and your pursuit of his mission? The one who created you for his glory, is he not able to get glory out of your life? The one who made you for himself, is he not able to use you in fruitful ministry? Can the one who never lied, can he break his promise to you that he would make you a fisher of men? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Do you believe that? You believe that there's nothing impossible with God? Or maybe you're here today and you feel like you can never be saved. You feel like you can never be saved. Whether that's you look around and you see Christians and you think, I can never be like them. Or whether you look at false gods and sin in your life and you say, I can never let go of this stuff. Or you look at your, your sinful record in your life and you say, God can never forgive me. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Do you believe that you are beyond the reach of the one who made the heavens and the earth? The one who calls all the stars by name? The one who has all power and all authority in heaven and on earth? Do you believe that you are beyond his reach? You're not. You're not. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. Nothing is impossible with our God. He has more power and more authority than we could ever imagine. And let's go out of this place today believing that. That there is nothing too hard for our God. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your kindness and your tenderness, Lord. Of how you draw near to us in the midst of our unbelief. God, we pray that you would dislodge it in our life by reminding us of who you are, high and lifted up. Lord, we ask that by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would drive your word into our hearts today and cause it to bear fruit. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.